Okay, welcome back once again, Systematic Theology. This is session 53, and we're continuing our look at redemption. Once again, redemption is God's work, God's project of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, and then applying that redemption to the elect at the time of their salvation. And our structure has been, for this part of the study, to go through the logical order of God's application of salvation benefits to his people. And that order of application, that logical order, is called the ordo salutis. And that just means it's fancy Latin for the order of salvation. And um, I believe I put it once again there in your notes. Uh, different Reformed theologians may have a slightly different take on the ordo salutis, but um, I've been presenting it in the order that you see there. And we're up to step 3A, which is justification. In justification, it is God himself who bridges this incredible gulf between sinful man and the holy God. And last time we saw that justification is a work of God alone. We, are, we, we don't bring anything to the table for justification. And that's the meaning of the term sola fide, faith alone. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Saving faith, what is it? It's the empty hand of the destitute beggar reaching out to receive the gift of the rich man. It's, we have nothing in our hand as we reach out. We're destitute. In saving faith, we hear the gospel. We agree with the gospel that it is true. And then we trust in Christ and we rest in that. And last time we read the definition of justification from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I've in, I think I've included that in the notes again. But I also tonight want to read another definition. And this is from the 16th century Reformed theologian, Amandus Polanus. The free justification of man, the sinner, before God is the benefit of God by which he declares man, by nature wicked, but by grace truly believing, righteous and free from eternal condemnation, as well as a sharer of eternal life through the obedience of Jesus Christ, our mediator and savior alone. The last time we saw that justification comes only to the elect once they are effectually called and God grants them saving faith. We also saw that God freely justifies the elect. Again, our faith is an empty hand. We bring nothing but our sins to the table. The justification that God grants is free of cost. And then we looked at that at the part of the definition in the Westminster Confession where it says that righteousness is not infused into us. This notion of God infusing righteousness as part of justification, that's a Roman Catholic doctrine, and the Westminster Confession denies this. The righteousness that God grants in justification, it's not like jump-starting a dead car battery, and now the rest is up to us. Well, we got the engine going, we got the battery jump-started, Okay, now it's up to you. Instead, we saw that justification instead is forensic. And that's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. Forensic justification is God the judge bringing the gavel down and declaring us righteous. Once God has declared an elect person righteous, no power on earth can ever reverse that. And the devil's accusations cannot reverse that verdict. Once we are justified, we will never again be in jeopardy of eternal condemnation. 
We also saw that justification is an instantaneous act of God, and it's not repeated. Justification, it doesn't come in stages. There is no second justification on the final day of salvation. We will never be more justified or less justified than we are at the moment of our salvation. Now this blessing from God's grace of justification has kind of like, so to speak, two halves to it. The first part of justification we normally think of is that our sins are forgiven. And God sees us legally as though we had never sinned. Now you've probably heard that cute little definition of justification as just as if I never sinned, right? It's kind of a cute little saying, justification just as if I never sinned. And that is a wonderful blessing. That's only half of it. It's only half the story. Many Christians don't know about the other aspect of justification, that when we are declared righteous, God sees us legally as though we had performed the law entirely and perfectly. Now, that's why we took that detour over the last few studies. If you remember, when we looked at the law of God, we spent like four sessions just looking at the law of God. Our state before the judgment seat of God depends on our relation to God's law. If you remember what we, what we refer to as the first use of the law, the first use is to show us our sin and misery. The law shows us two things. First, we have broken the law by sinning. When we were born, the sin of Adam was legally credited to each of us. Then, because we had sin nature, we went on to sin ourselves. The first use of the law shows us that we sin. But the first use of the law also tells us that we lack the righteousness needed to have a right relationship with God. God cannot be our God and we cannot be his people outside of righteousness. Righteousness is the perfect record of having carried out the entire law in thought, word, and deed. To be righteous, the law must be satisfied in every detail. The Heidelberg Catechism phrases this twofold divine declaration like this As if I had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. Two halves in the Heidelberg Catechism, as if I had never committed any sin or had sin, and as if I had fully accomplished all the obedience which Christ accomplished for me. Justification is forensic. It's a forensic declaration, a verdict from God's courtroom of two things. First, our sins are forgiven and expiated. And we looked at that word expiated way back over a year ago. Expiation means that because our sins have been completely removed from us, then transferred to our substitute, Christ, and Christ bore the punishment for our sins, our guilt is completely canceled. God's justice cannot demand anything more from us. God will not remember our sins against us. Then secondly, in justification, we are forensically declared righteous, as though we had kept the entire law 
in thought, word, and deed. After this instantaneous act of God of justification, our forensic relationship to the law is completely changed. When we look at our need for justification, we need to look at our relationship to God's law, both before and after justification. When God justifies us as sinners, our relationship to the law changed. The law places twin demands on man, twin demands. First, the law prohibits sin and levies the penalty of death for sin. Secondly, the law demands that we carry out the law fully and completely. The law not only gives the negative, do not sin, but also gives the positive, carry out the entire law, do all righteousness. Our relationship with the law before justification is that we failed at both of those things, negative and positive. We were born responsible for the sin of Adam because he represented us in the Garden of Eden. Then we went on to commit sins of our own. So on the negative side where the law says, do not sin, we have failed and we're not righteous. Then on the law's positive command, which is to love God with all our being, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love righteousness with all our heart, we have failed. So before justification, our relationship with the law is that we are guilty, liable to punishment. That's what guilt means, liability to punishment. We're unrighteous. We're unable to stand before God at the judgment. We're unqualified for right relationship with God. So let's spend a few minutes looking at how our sin affects our relationship to the law. Both the sin of Adam, which was accounted to us at our birth, and then our own sins cause us to be polluted. Before justification, we are polluted and unclean in the sight of the most holy God. In one of the speeches of Job, he laments over the uncleanness of sinful man. And I'm going to read from Job chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. And this may sound familiar because we've looked at this passage before. Job chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Man who is born of a woman is few of days, full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Job laments that God is bringing him into judgment because he knows that in himself he cannot bring a clean thing to the bench of God's judgment out of his own uncleanness. Next, I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. And here, Paul is giving his readers a strong command. Now that they are in the Lord, they are no more to practice the sins that characterize unbelievers. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here in this passage, Paul is giving us kind of a catalog of the spectrum of pollution coming from sin. They are darkened in their understanding. This means they cannot comprehend the things of God. They are alienated from the life of God. Their relation to God is one of alienation and enmity because of sin's pollution. They are hardened in their hearts and callous. Their face is set like flint toward the furtherance of sin. Then the passage states that they have given themselves up to the full range of sin, which includes sensuality and greed. Finally, sin's pollution is expressed with the word impurity. Pollution or impurity is the same as moral corruption. And once pollution has passed through God's judgment, it becomes guilt. Guilt is once again a forensic term, a term from the courtroom. Guilt means we, because of sin and pollution, are liable to punishment under the law. Our relationship to God's law before salvation is one of guilt before the judgment bench of God's courtroom. I'm going to read next from Romans chapter 3. As we come to Romans chapter 3, Paul has proven that all people, both Jews and Gentiles, have broken the law, sinned, and stand guilty in God's courtroom. Everyone in the state in which they are born has a relationship with the law where the law condemns them as guilty and liable to punishment under the terms of the law. And I'll read Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law speak, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In this passage, we see that the law speaks. The law has something to say to sinful mankind. The law condemns as guilty. This passage evokes the image of all mankind standing in the courtroom and every mouth is stopped before the judge. In the courtroom, the accused, all of mankind is accountable to the judge under the law. The whole world is accountable. This is what the law speaks. After the law's requirement that we do not sin, that's the negative aspect of the law, we come to the second category of what the law requires. We could call this the positive aspect of obedience. The law requires us to uphold the entirety of the law as a unified whole. It requires perfect obedience in every respect. The law requires moral perfection in thought, word, and deed. This moral perfection has to be continuous and lifelong. Here's a quote from Spurgeon on Christ's perfect obedience to the law. He, he said, the law has one great demand, obedience. If a man disobeys and is punished, he does not thereby escape from the duty of obedience. The law is still upon him, saying, obey, obey. 
oh, but I've been punished for past offenses. Even so, but you are still bound to obey. The law is always our creditor for a perfect obedience. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be next in Deuteronomy chapter 27. In this passage, Moses has delivered the law to the people again as they're ready to enter the land of Canaan. And now Moses is instructing them that once they cross the Jordan River, they are to line up on two opposing mountains and recite the blessings and curses of the law. They were to recite the promised blessings for obedience and the law's curses for disobedience. When one of the sections of the curse comes to an end, there's a big, long section on the curses for disobedience. And at the end of it, there is a summary curse. If all the curses that came before aren't enough, there's a summary curse at the end. It's a curse that wraps up all the previous curses. I'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, for the summary curse. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. The people were to confirm the words of the law. Their obedience would be like them standing alongside the law and setting their seal upon the law. Doing the entirety of the law was to sign one's own name under it that it's good. This setting of their seal on the law would be done by being doers of the law. When they disobeyed the law, they would actually be doing all they could to cancel the law. Because the law stands or falls as a whole. Matthew Henry wrote this about the sum, this summary verse of the law's curses. He wrote, Lest those who were guilty of other sins, not mentioned in this divine threat, should think themselves safe from the curse, this last reaches all. Not only those who do the evil which the law forbids, but those also who omit the good which the law requires. To this we must all say amen, owning ourselves under the curse, justly to have deserved it, and that we must certainly have perished forever under it, if Christ had not redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. Now, I'll read where Paul in Galatians quotes this summary verse. He actually goes back and quotes that summary verse. This is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians 3.10. Paul here was in the middle of bringing a serious charge against the Galatians because they were in danger of abandoning the gospel and instead going to Judaism and law-keeping to try to gain favor with God by their own efforts. Paul brings up Abraham and points out that Abraham was justified by faith, not works. Paul then tells the Galatians that if they want to be judged by law-keeping, they better know what they're getting themselves into. To prove his point, Paul quotes from this summary curse in Deuteronomy. But when Paul quotes this verse, he puts in a word that we don't find in Deuteronomy. I'll read from Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by 
all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul takes the quote from Deuteronomy and he adds a word, and that word is all. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is giving special emphasis to the fact that the law stands or falls as a whole. The Galatians can't gain comfort from thinking, well, I've kept certain parts of the law. The only blessing the law brings is the blessing of total obedience to the entire body of law in thought, word, and deed. Fulfillment of the law requires this little word that means so much, all. William Perkins wrote this about this passage in Galatians. Again, he is cursed that does not all things which the law prescribes, or if he do them, yet does not continue in all. So then he is cursed that breaks the law but once, and that only in one thought. For such a one does not continue in all things. The law places two obligations upon man. First, that we do not sin in any matter. Second, that we fulfill the law, to fulfill the entire intent of the law, which addresses the heart as well as outward actions. To fulfill the law means to keep the entire intent of the law over our entire lives. The theologian Bavinck wrote that the law claims us totally with heart and mind, soul and body. If we were to be righteous under the law, we must not only refrain from sin, we must be perfectly engaged with fulfilling all righteousness. If we were to be truly justified by our own efforts under the law, we would have to first never sin. This is because, as it says in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. When a person sins, he is practicing lawlessness since the law stands or falls as a whole. Then second, if we were to be truly justified by our own efforts under the law, we must fulfill all righteousness. You know, this fulfilling of righteousness is what Adam and Eve were commanded in the garden before they fell. You might remember that about two and a half years ago when we studied the doctrine of man, we looked at how God did not create Adam as this moral blank slate. Instead, God created Adam with what we called original righteousness. Adam was created with righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. And that's because with, without these qualities, Adam could not dwell in this original temple, which was the garden, and truly serve and worship God in that garden temple as he should. Adam and Eve had the law of God written on their hearts. They had true knowledge, holiness, and righteousness, which is why God pronounced his creation of Adam and Eve good. But once Adam and Eve, with these advantages of true knowledge, holiness, and righteousness, they were placed in the garden, God gave them two commands. The first command is what we call the dominion mandate. I'll read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were to multiply and also rule over creation as an extension of God's rule. We might call this the positive aspect of obedience to God. This is what Adam and Eve were to do in order to obey, as opposed to what they were to refrain from doing. And then we come to the second command. That second command was to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I'll read this command from Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We might call this the negative aspect of obedience. This command is what Adam and Eve were not to do. Adam and Eve were created with original righteousness, but now these two commands come. Obedience to these commands were how they were to fulfill the righteousness they were created with. Adam and Eve owed God two things, to refrain from sin and to fulfill righteousness, to continuously live out obedience to the mandate they were given and obedience to the law, which was written on their hearts. Now, when Adam and Eve fell, they lost original righteousness. In the fall, Adam departed from obedience. He failed to fulfill righteousness. And he sinfully claimed autonomy, which just means self-law. The obedience that Adam was commanded required him to find his own will completely within the will of God. The story of the earth since then been one of mankind's rebellion against God. Man, in the state in which he's born, he's incapable of obeying the law. He has no love of righteousness. He instead sees God's law as shackles to be cast off. Man, in his natural state, claims autonomy, independence, self-rule, self-law. So in the original divine commands to Adam, we see a positive command and a negative command. The negative command, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The positive command, carry out the dominion mandate. Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. In this dominion, it was to be an extension of God's righteous dominion. Adam failed at both aspects of the command. You know, mankind today does have some dominion, but it's not a righteous dominion. It's not an extension of God's righteous rule as it should be. The declaration of righteousness in God's courtroom requires both the negative aspect, do not sin, and the positive aspect, submit your whole heart to God's rule, righteousness, and law. We fail at both aspects. In order to have righteousness before God, both of these aspects have to be addressed. And both aspects have to have a remedy. The positive aspect of fulfilling righteousness requires the whole heart to be affected. If we were to approach God with an imagined righteousness of our own, we would have to pass God's judgment of our hearts. 
of whether we love righteousness and hate iniquity. Since in our natural state we are the opposite, we cannot fulfill righteousness and offer our own righteousness in God's courtroom. The mindset that characterizes righteousness is displayed by the Lord himself in Psalm 11, which is where I'll be next, Psalm 11. In Psalm 11, David is contrasting God's judgment of the wicked versus the righteous. The Lord from his heavenly temple and his throne of judgment is testing the children of men, testing both the righteous and the wicked. In verse 7, David summarizes God's righteous judgment. Psalm 11, 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The reason why the Lord separates the righteous from the wicked, both with their differing final judgments, is because of God's character. It is part of God's righteousness that he loves righteousness, as expressed in righteous deeds. But we see that righteousness isn't confined to externals. The Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. God's moral character is that he loves righteousness itself. If theoretically we could somehow bring our own righteousness to God in order to be declared justified, our hearts would have to fully love righteousness and fully hate wickedness and sin. I'll be in the book of Hebrews next, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We can see there that the moral character of God is that he loves righteousness. And this is a love of righteousness from the heart. In Christ's earthly walk, he completely kept the demands of the law with thoughts, words, and deeds that were completely righteous. And Christ did this from a heart that truly loved righteousness. I'll be in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, Paul, who I believe to be the author of Hebrews, is quoting from Psalm 45 here to show the superiority of Christ to angels. And if we look at the quote, we can see three things in verses 8 and 9. First, the throne of Christ the King will never fade in power or be overthrown. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And second, we see that the kingly rule of Christ is characterized by uprightness. When it says, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. I like how the King James phrases this. It says, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So we see in one in one translation, the scepter of uprightness, and in the King James, a scepter of righteousness. Christ's rule, which is symbolized by the scepter, is a righteous rule. His kingdom is characterized by righteousness. Third, we see the perfectly righteous heart of Christ. You 
have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The reason why Christ in his rule as king rules with righteousness is because he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. His outward deeds of righteousness proceed from the motivation of a righteous heart. The only true root of righteousness in a person's actions is a heart that loves righteousness out of love for God. The theologian Gerhardus Voss affirmed this when he wrote about the difference between legalism and a true change in affections. He said, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but does not adore. Obeys for the wrong reasons. It obeys, but does not adore. That's legalism. To keep the positive aspect of the law by our own strength would mean our complete adoring of God and his moral character, his righteousness. It goes just beyond outward legalism. Martin Luther, in his preface to the book of Romans, also wrote that if we were to actually fulfill the law, this wouldn't be only keeping the works of the law perfectly, but also doing so from the root of a perfect heart. Luther wrote this, you must get used to the idea that it is one thing to do the works of the law, quite another to fulfill it. The works of the law are everything that a person does or can do of his own free will and by his own powers to obey the law. But because in doing such works, the heart abhors the law and yet is forced to obey it, the works are a total loss and are completely useless. What Luther was saying was that when unsaved people do nice things out of fear of judgment, this isn't from a heart that loves righteousness. When unsaved people try to gain salvation through law-keeping, they're not doing so out of a love of righteousness. Let's say for argument's sake that hypothetically we could keep the works of the law. This still wouldn't be fulfilling the law. This is what Luther meant when he differentiated between doing works of law-keeping and truly fulfilling the law. Luther wrote that fulfilling the law would require doing it eagerly, lovingly, and freely. It would require doing so from a perfect heart that perfectly loves righteousness and hates iniquity. Only Christ has done this. When we come to Christ for justification, we are destitute of these things. We cannot be justified by our own works on both levels. We don't come to God's bar of justice having even begun to keep the works of the law. We don't come to God's bar of justice with a heart that does anything out of perfect love of righteousness. When we come to God to be justified, we can't offer either aspect of obedience, either keeping the works of the law or fulfilling its intent from a righteous heart. We owe God both aspects of righteousness, and we come to God's bar of judgment destitute of both aspects of righteousness. What we owe, we cannot pay on two levels. Once again, the theologian Gerhardus Voss also wrote this concerning the obligation of man to keep the entire law. He wrote, man has obligations toward God, owes him something. 
his entire moral condition is seen as being subject to the claim of God. Our entire moral condition is subject to the claim of God. The law's requirement to both flee sin and to carry out the positive commands of the law is something we can see in the encounter of the lawyer with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, which is where I'll be next. In Luke chapter 10, a lawyer came to Jesus with a question. What good work could he offer to God that would sort of seal the deal for eternal life? Now, Jesus prompted him to look to the law for the answer. I'll be in Luke chapter 10. I'll read verses 25 to 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Christ didn't tell the lawyer to just give it his best effort, and God would give him an A for effort. Christ didn't tell him that if he just gave it the old college try, God would accept his best efforts. What was his answer? Christ's answer was, do this and live. That's not good news. These four words, do this and live, are the harsh taskmaster of the first use of the law. The first use of the law tells us that we can't do this and live. The obligation under the law is to keep it entirely. If the lawyer was looking for what work he could bring in his own righteousness to secure eternal life, this is Jesus' answer. And it's the answer of the law itself. Those four little words that are impossible for us. Do this and live. When the law says these four words, do this and live, what did Jesus point to specifically? He pointed to the two great commandments. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. The law demands both a positive and negative response. The lawyer who approached Jesus, he was a legalist. He wanted to know what one thing he could do legally to gain eternal life. When Jesus turned the question around on him, it turns out that the legalistic lawyer already knew the answer. Deep down inside, he knew he couldn't accomplish it. The negative of the law is do not sin against God or neighbor. The positive keeping of the law is to love God with all our being and our neighbor as ourselves. The Puritan William Perkins phrased it like this when he wrote, We owe to God a double debt. One by creation, namely the fulfilling of the law in all things from our first beginning. The second, since the fall of Adam, namely a satisfaction for the breach of the law. So here's what Perkins meant by this double debt that we owe God. We owe God a complete fulfilling of the law, which is what Adam was commanded before he fell. The other debt is a satisfaction for our sins, and this debt came when Adam fell. John Murray also phrased this as the twofold 
demand of the law of God. He wrote that the law of God has both penal sanctions and positive demands. Penal sanctions and positive demands. The law requires both aspects fully obeying all its precepts, and it also demands inflicting the penalty for all infractions of the law and any shortcomings. So, why did we spend quite a bit of time on the twofold demand of the law? It's because we do tend to think of the law as having only one demand, which is don't sin. But there's also the requirement to completely fulfill the law. And this is going to be important when we go on to the next session, when we look at how Christ addressed both of these aspects of the law in his obedience. In both aspects, Christ stood in our place as the one who fulfilled all the righteousness of the law and fully, also fully took the divine wrath for sin due to us, his people. And then secondly, we spent this time on the two aspects of the law so we can be reminded why we need a redeemer. Under the law, we owe God two things. We owe complete fulfillment of the law, and we owe legal satisfaction for the penalty of breaking the law for Adam's sin and our own. We cannot and have not fulfilled the law in every detail from a perfect heart that loves righteousness. We cannot and have not refrained from infractions of the law. The reason why we spent four sessions on the law of God a while back is to show why we cannot be saved by our own law keeping, by trying to present our own righteousness. We looked at what is called the first use of the law, which is the, the task of the law to show us our true position of sinfulness and our need for Christ. Then seeing this Two-fold aspect of the law reminds us that the first use reminds us of that first use of the law. It puts us in our place, so to speak, causes us to see ourselves the way we really are, in desperate need of divine mercy, in need of saving. Anyone who thinks they can withstand the final judgment based on their own righteousness, based on what their polluted hearts and works bring to the table, has a very low view of the law. In Philippians chapter 3, which is where I'll be next, Paul emphasized the impossibility of being justified, being proclaimed righteousness at the bench of God's judgment by presenting our own personal track record of law-keeping. I'll read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The next reason for going over the two aspects of the law that we owe to God is to show the greatness of the work of Christ. The greatness of the work of Christ. Before God's declaration that we are justified based on faith alone, we were destitute in two ways. We were destitute to repay God in any sense for our debt of sin. We were also destitute 
to pay God for what we owe in fulfilling the entire law. The work of Christ in his incarnation, in his perfect life, and his substitutionary atonement, his work on the cross, is so great that it pays both debts. After justification, we stand before God with those debts paid. Paid by the work of another. Paid by the priceless work of our Savior and his priceless blood. So to sum up tonight, I'll read from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is our righteousness. We had nothing to offer but our sin. But Christ shed his precious blood at the cross to pay our debt of sin, to expiate our sin, taking away our sin and guilt completely. We are declared not guilty. It is as though we had not sinned. Then Christ crowns us with righteousness, as though we had fulfilled the law and kept it completely. Christ has paid both debts. And that's where I'll stop tonight, because there's not enough time to go into the next aspects of justification to cover tonight. And where we'll go in the next two sessions when I return is to focus on the work of Christ that pays what we owe and then how that payment is credited to us. What's the mechanism by which it's credited to us, which is the subject of imputation. But for now, I'm going to close with what Spurgeon wrote to cause us to reflect on that verse we just read, Jeremiah 23, 6. Here's what Spurgeon wrote on that. What though distresses afflict me, Though Satan assault me, though there may be many things to be experienced before I get to heaven, those are done for me in the covenant of divine grace. There is nothing wanting in my Lord. Christ has done it all. On the cross, he said, it is finished. And if it be finished, then I am complete in him and can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Amen.